So the field of the radical left is essentially like all other political and social phenomena, it's like a minefield. Uh, I would say that there is a methodological issue here because of the diversity which is involved when we refer to this radical left. This is not only because it's a mosaic left, it's a very pluralist left with various constituent units, but it's because when we talk of a radical left, many scholars indeed frame it in different ways. This episode explores the radical left, left-wing politics, protests, and social movements in Cyprus and beyond. Dr. Yanos Katsuridis at the University of Nicosia shares with us his insights and his new upcoming projects on the radical left. Welcome to the Diplomatic Academy, the Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode features a discussion on the radical left, but it's not just a discussion on left-wing ideological attributes. We puzzle with left-wing politics, parties, social movements and protests, and some academic and theoretical questions. And for this episode, we are hosting Dr. Yannos Katsuridis from the University of Nicosia. Hi, Yannos. It's great to have you here with us today. Hello, Petros. I'm very happy to be here with you myself. Fantastic. Uh, Just uh, a few words for our guest. Dr. Yannos Katsuridis is an assistant professor of political science at the Department of Politics and Governance uh, of the University of Nicosia. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Cyprus and was previously director of Prometheus Research Institute and adjunct lecturer at the Department of Social and Political Sciences of the University of Cyprus. He has held visiting fellowships from the Hellenic Observatory of the European Institute of the London School of Economics, the Institute of Commonwealth Studies of the University of London for five years between 2010 and 2015, and the British School of Athens. His research interests include South European politics, Cyprus and Greek politics, radical left and extreme right Uh, political parties, political participation, and political institutions. He is also the author of three books, uh, The History of uh, the Communist Party in Cyprus, published with IB Tories in 2014, The Radical Left in Government and the Cases of Syriza and Agel, uh, published by Pogrev Macmillan in 2016, and The Greek Cypriot Nationalist Ride in the Era of British Colonialism, published by Springer in 2017. His articles have appeared in West European politics, South European society, and politics, nations, and nationalism, as well as in the Journal of European Integration, among others. So, uh, Janos, again, it's great to have you here. You have a very rich uh, biography, which is very relevant and very interesting for our conversation today. I um, like to invite you to give us an overview on um, on our topic today, but first. How do we distinguish between the radical left and your the the more typically organized left wing party? What what actually prompts us to say that this is a radical left uh, movement? Yeah. First of all, thank you very much uh, for the introductory comments, uh, Petros. Uh, it it kind of reminded me of my academic career so far, uh, which was good to remember where we, where 
did I start from and where I, where I am going? I'm glad to hear that. Essentially, the issue of the radical left has been one of the main preoccupations I've had uh, throughout my career. This was informed by personal background factors, uh, not only from uh, academic interest, but it has captured my interest uh, since the day one. So I keep, even 15 years later, I keep an interest in uh, radical left politics. So the field of the radical left is essentially like all other political and social phenomena, it's like a minefield. Uh, I would say that there is a methodological issue here because of the diversity which is involved when we refer to this radical left. This is not only because it's a mosaic left, it's a very pluralist left with various constituent units, but it's because when we talk of a radical left, many scholars indeed frame it in different ways. Some conceptualize it uh, as a party family, which means that uh, we mostly refer to political parties. Others utilize it as uh, something broader, a broader political sphere that involves other organizations and social movements of so the extra-parliamentary left, uh, various social movements, and the list goes on. It could be endless. And complexity adds because within this political milieu, we have uh, parties, we have movements, organizations, which are of various nuances, uh, ideological nuances. They are communist, uh, either reformist or orthodox. Some, they are socialist. Uh, there are categorizations that include populist socialists, more conservative socialists, libertarian leftists. And again, I, I could speak for a long time for these categorizations, just to point out that there is indeed an issue of methodology here, which is not easy to make uh, these distinctions and categorizations. So the first thing we need to distinguish is whether we refer to the radical left as a party family or uh, the radical left as uh, a broader conceptualization that also includes movements and other organizations uh, beyond parties. If we adapt the more broad approach, uh, then methodologically speaking, it's not easy to compare because, to compare because we are talking about different units of comparison. Uh, it's not easy to compare a party with a movement or a party with a pressure group or an interest group that has a leftist leaning uh, because they are organized on entirely different terms. The movement by definition, and this relates a lot with your question, the distinction has very loose and fluid structures. They can change easily. Whereas the party is any form of, of organization, they need to have a structure and they need to have a bureaucracy. Uh, within the parties, of course, which is my main preoccupation, it's not so much on social movements, my research, uh, but it relates with social movements as well. There are also uh, added variations which uh, involves their organization. And this again ranges from uh, Orthodox communist parties with a very strict discipline, hierarchical forms of organization, uh, to less tight organizational forms, usually parties of what we call this new left. Uh, so the radical left is not uh, an easy uh, field to work with. In general, what we have come to an agreement, let's say, an, uh, an undeclared social contract, if I may say, in the academia, uh, is because of the need to compare and the need to categorize, 
uh, we acknowledge uh, that the radical left became, uh, as a term, the minimum meeting point that, me that many scholars agreed throughout the years uh, as uh, a way to have a minimum understanding of what we are referring to. So it's uh, depending on the uh, definition we, uh, we adapt, uh, then we move on to the next issues, which is about comparing. So not easy to compare a political party of the radical left with a social movement, which has a radical leftist leaning. In general, the radical left, um, to conclude, because I have uh, spoken a bit, um, it's uh, defined by its opposition to the existing capitalist mode uh, of uh, contemporary world. Uh, it rejects the capitalist form, but uh, we mostly define the radical left by what they object and not what they propose because the proposals range a lot. So by definition, radical means something which, which is out of the box, let's say. So opposition, and it's a left because it's, it's opposition to, the, to capitalism. From uh, there onwards, there are various uh, variations and nuances within the left. So for example, just to give an example, Petros, Agel and Syriza are included usually in these categorizations of the radical left. But if we go deep into analyzing these two parties, we will see that Agel has a strict communist type organizational structure. I'm not talking so much on the ideological issue, whereas Syriza has always been a much more loose uh, organization than Agel, but they are included in this uh, under this label and in this party family together. Yeah, you know, as you've rightly pointed out, it's uh, definitely not easy to try and break this mm -hmm. down. And you've definitely uh, mentioned quite a few things that uh, we, uh, we we will probably not be able to unpack in one single episode. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, I know. yeah, but what's exciting actually, it's still interesting to uh, study and engage in this field because of these uh, contested concepts that you've brought up. And yeah. uh, definition-wise, as you said, but also methodologically speaking, there's uh, indeed, it's harder to try and break down what consists of a movement as compared to a party, which is much more um, structured in a way. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to bring up this one specific definition that is uh, taken up uh, from a sociology textbook, which it basically defines radical movements as uh, individuals or groups that adopt violent characteristics directly linked to extremist political, social, or uh, other ideologies challenging the established or the mainstream politi political, social, or cultural order. And the problem that I have with this definition myself is that it states that, you know, radical movements or parties or whatever, this is actually much more concentrated on movements. They are often predisposed to violence, or at least they have some sort of an appetite for it. And how accurate is this? And do we see this in radical left-wing parties as well? Is there really this predisposition to violence? A huge issue again. Okay, although not a specific area of personal expertise thus far, uh, however, I am now engaged with a PhD student. She studies uh, the topic of political violence in uh, Southern Europe. So I'm starting to get engaged with the literature. 
My personal take on the issue is that being radical does not uh, necessarily include violence. Uh, I wouldn't exclude it either, but for me it's not identical. Uh, radicalism might imply some degree of violence, but not necessarily. Uh, it's both about demands and ways, ways of claiming these uh, demands. So, uh, and within the radical left, this debate has been ongoing since uh, the days of Marx. Later, Lenin is very famous for his opposition to personal violence in the debates he had with his contemporaries at the time. I would say that there is a normative issue here in the methodological, again, one. The normative question is to answer very difficult types of questions. When and in what conditions does a movement or an actor is legitimized to use violence? Uh, in other words, what is the purpose of violent contact? I know that the premises of liberal democracy usually do not allow any room for violence uh, of any form other than state violence. However, not all people accept uh, this approach and particularly because state violence uh, is usually exercised on ideological grounds and only against certain groups. We have recent examples in Cyprus. We can elaborate on that later if, if you like, but we can even extend this question uh, beyond the radical left, in anti-colonial movements, were they allowed to exercise violence against their colonial oppressor, the colonial power? And here is the normative issue, which involves the when and why uh, an actor is uh, legitimized, let's say, to uh, act in a, in a violent way. The methodological issue here concerns issues such as, okay, how do we define violent contact? For some, it's okay killing like uh, the 17th of November, killing someone. I've seen definitions of uh, violent contact, which means just mobilizing, just going into a demonstration. So it's the type of violent contact that we need to uh, account for, the target of violence, who is the actor who performs uh, the violent contact, and many other related questions. And all this relate, of course, with how we categorize violent activity and what do we term a, vi a violent activity. As I said, I'm not so inclined to um, identify the radical left, either in terms of a movement or a political party with violence. Usually, uh, this when we, when we do have uh, a form of political violence by the far left, is usually small organizations rather than parties and some parts of social movements, not all social movements, because again, by definition, a social movement is very broad. And this, to my understanding, relates with the arena in which they choose to operate. Organizations or movements that do not pursue parliamentary representation might be more inclined to act in um, forms that could take a violent turn sometimes, whereas the parties that aim for parliamentary participation and government participation, you cannot easily find them having this type of behaviors. On a conceptual point, some recently, some scholars argue a lot with all this experience we have with the austerity in uh, Europe and all over the world in the last 10, 15 years, mm. that there are also People who argue that poverty, for example, extreme poverty is also a form of violence or being homeless as another form of violence. So again, a minefield, I wouldn't accept the identification of the radical left with violence, but I acknowledge that there are parts 
of uh, the far left in particular, some small organizations, and even some uh, parts of uh, larger social movements, they, they might utilize political violence as well. But I don't take it as, uh, an, as an identification, as a congruence between being radical and or being a radical leftist uh, equates with the use of political violence. Yeah, it's uh, really good to hear that because I also am of the same school that, you know, just because something is radical, just because something is uh, essentially non-mainstream, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is uh, this uh, traditional or whatever, this predisposition uh, to violence. Uh, Petro, if, and, I, if, uh, I, if I may add to this with an example, we've had privatizations, the mainstream approach in the last 30 years, I would say, within the European Union has been in favor of privatizations. Renationalizing would be indeed a radical position, wouldn't be. Is this a form of political violence? Why is it a political <laughs> violence? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, again, it's uh, it depends on from which from what sort of lens you're looking at it. Yeah. And because uh, w when we bring something into the uh, more mainstream field of discussion, the moment you propose something that's outside that framework, then essentially it can be considered radical. And this this is something that we've seen even during feudal times when people were asking for rights from exactly. their from the monarch. And <laughs> Either radical or, or sometimes populist, which is not always the case. An entirely different debate of the populism issue. But it's mm -hmm. either framed, yeah, if you go outside the mainstream, you are either uh, labeled as radical or populist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I also have to add that it's different from when we're, we speak of polarization. And, you know, because polarization to me, as I understand it, it's when, you know, these oppositions uh, between people or groups in society, they bring in the possibility of exasperating tensions and it actually creates societal security risks. That's a different yeah, exactly. story. You've mentioned a couple of examples. You've, you've actually referred to earlier to Agel and Syriza. And uh, in uh, Cyprus and beyond, I mean, in the EU as well, I, I wanted to ask you specifically about this approach that traditional mainstream parties have. Mm -hmm. We've seen protests from social movements formed across the political spectrum, right? So we've seen them coming in from left to right. And we have uh, different upcoming elections as well. We have elections coming up in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. We have elections coming up in Bulgaria. Yeah. And there have been, in these cases, different protests, different movements. And uh, some analysts, they've claimed, although I haven't really seen any substantial analysis on this, that uh, these movements, they are here to upset the establishment of uh, traditional and mainstream parties. Do you think that in the future we mm -hmm. will see additional formation of more radical left-wing parties. And let's just take it one step at a time. Let's look at Cyprus for a minute. And because you've compared that Agel to Syriza, that Agel is much more uh, structured, whereas Syriza is much more of a loose coalition. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before going to the specific Cyprus issue, uh, I would say that with, uh, with regard to your more general comment, whether these social movements actually exercise influence and upset the traditional mainstream party and political system. We have seen this happening, uh, not only historically, but also very recently. We have seen social movements uh, producing uh, new parties. We have seen social movements and newcomer parties 
upsetting the established balance of powers in, in a number of countries, uh, and not only in Europe, but also beyond Europe. For example, in Latin America, uh, since the 2000s onwards, we've seen many examples how native movements there or, or leftist movements of various nuances, once again, they have managed to up unsettle the political establishment. But even if we keep it within the European Union, we have seen during the last decade, some parties arising from these movements, which indicates a clear influence that the social movement can have on the political uh, system. On, on some occasions, they have indeed unsettled the party in the political systems. And we don't have to go uh, very far to think about this, but we, we can go in Greece and Spain, um, the Podemos and Syriza. Uh, these parties uh, were described as the product, the children of these austerity movements, the anti-austerity movements that, that shocked both Spain uh, and Greece. Before that, we had the anti-globalization movement that inspired again some parties or at least infused some of their ideas into mainstream parties because it's not only about creating parties, of course, but it's also uh, transmitting your ideas into the established parties, which is also a form of change, maybe not so radical, but is a change nevertheless. Anti-immigration movements, if we see the other side of the picture of the coin, uh, and feelings all over Europe have, have also uh, inspired political parties, AFT in Germany, even in Cyprus and Greece, Elam and the Golden Dawn have been inspired again, both by this uh, anti-austerity wave and also the anti-immigration movement. A similar process, uh, Petros, also occurred, uh, if you go back in history, uh, with the working class movement, which was a, a movement initially, in the 19th century and it produced organizations like trade unions and political parties of various variations, which again, unsettle entirely the political system. If we only think the case of Britain uh, before the uh, Labour Party, uh, the environmental movement, they also started as a movement in the 60s and 70s. And some of them were later transformed into political parties. The Green Party in Germany, they have unsettled, not only in, in numbers, it's also the ideas they, they bring influencing political decisions, both at the national and the European level. And to cut this long story short, I would say that both the historical experience, but also recent developments in, in Europe in the last 10, 12 years, indicate that social movements can have a very decisive effect on the political and party systems of every country. Uh, unfortunately, of course, in recent years, this influence and transformation also takes place from populist right-wing actors as well, but this is unavoidable. In Cyprus now, my personal view is that for some years now, there is room for a left party, but I would say that this is easier said than done by any actor. Uh, the small size of Cyprus can be um, pointed here as uh, a barrier to that, uh, because established parties have an organizational network that uh, expands all over the country. So it's not easy for a newcomer to enter. It's not like uh, a vast country like Britain or Germany or, uh, or even Greece. Uh, the resources that you require to sustain such an endeavor is not easy. You need uh, money, you need uh, offices, you need buildings, uh, you need people to work for, uh, for such a party. So both on the left, but also on the right, uh, there, are, there is room 
for newcomers to enter, but we haven't seen this happening uh, at least in the last 10 years. Uh, so I, I would say that there is room, but I wouldn't, uh, I, I don't think that it's easy to happen, at least in the forthcoming elections uh, of next May. Yeah, definitely not in the upcoming elections. It's just too soon for that um, uh, to actually be me, you know, to 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 have any fertile ground for that. But we did see how, uh, on the radical right, on the other hand, how Elam, obviously there was funding coming in from Golden Dawn in Greece, but Elam, yeah. because I remember when I was uh, actually personally targeted by Elam for other reasons, uh, okay. I remember how their website was just a blog. It didn't have a proper domain online, and it was actually functioning as a blog even be- well before it actually became uh, a political party. So, uh, I mean, despite the size... And, uh, yeah, you, you, you know, I understand your point, that you mean that it could happen. I mean, I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but I'm saying that it's a bit difficult to mm-hmm. happen. With Alam, as you rightly pointed out, they had funding from abroad. And they had, let's say, a model to imitate. Uh, they essentially reproduced Golden Dawn in Cyprus. They started with very few people. They successfully appealed to the to, to voters of the right-wing parties that were uh, disappointed with their mainstream parties. And in uh, a conjunction of an economic crisis, uh, the rise of immigration uh, rhetoric among the population, they found what we what we might call a niche market and they entered. But I would say that it was uh, it's it's the facilitating factor that they had support from uh, abroad, uh, which is not easily, of course, uh, proven. Uh, but it, we've seen uh, statements from uh, Golden Dawn cutters who spoke of that. I guess it was crucial for them, yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, I, I see your point, and um, but I, because I don't want to be, you know, <laughs> puzzling with this uh, for, for too long, I just wanted to bring yeah. in something yeah. that you've uh, referred to, I think, twice thus far. I think you were when you mentioned about the recent incidents mm-hmm. that happened in Cyprus, you are probably referring to the Golagasi Park protests. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. So yeah, so we've had these protests uh, taking place on the thirteenth. And the 20th of February 2021, with completely different outcomes on each mm-hmm. uh, occasion, we see we saw some violence on the 13th. That was uh, something quite shocking, quite new for Cyprus, uh, as compared to other countries like Greece or France, where you know violent clashes yeah. with the police is has been much more common. Do you think we will continue to see similar incidents, any sort of additional police violence or any, or even maybe violence uh, starting off from uh, the uh, demonstration itself from the protesters' side? I would agree with you, firstly, that uh, it was indeed shocking, uh, the police violence of the 13th of February. And although we've had prior instances of police violence in Cyprus, they were not in this context of uh, repressing, let's say, uh, a demonstration with clear political uh, demands and clear political, uh, it was articulated along political demands. We've seen police violence in other occasions, for example, in uh, football stadiums in, uh, against uh, fans uh, attending uh, football games and so forth, but it wasn't the case with these type of demonstrations. 
And I also agree with you that Cyprus has not had this experience for nearly five decades now. I would say that Cyprus in the post-1975, 1974 period uh, is a case of what we might call a consensual democracy uh, with almost inexistent instances of violence or militant mobilizations, at least from the side of the non-state actors, uh, not the police. Unlike Greece, as you very rightly pointed out, and other parts of Southern Europe like France or even Italy. Uh, it seems that in Cyprus, uh, have, everyone has been playing by the rules uh, of liberal democracy for decades now, and they have constrained activities and action within the parliamentary arena. And this is not without explanation, in my opinion. It's a result of two factors. One is the legacy of the 1974 events. Uh, what actually preceded that, the turmoil before the 1974 coup with the activities of uh, the Ogavida organization, which led to the coup and the invasion and the partition of the island, which seems to uh, bring along a negative legacy of political violence and militant, militant mobilizations in Cyprus, uh, which seems to be largely unaccepted by the majority of the population. Uh, this is not, of course, the case in Greece, for example, they did not experience the extent of the catastrophe in Cyprus in 1974. Increasing violence, at least from the left, was directly linked with the failures of the post-democratic, the post-authoritarian state, uh, the well-known Metabolitevsi to deal with those who were involved in the coup in Greece and the coup in Cyprus. So they had unresolved issues that one of the solutions was uh, political violence and also political mobilizations. So a negative legacy of militancy in Cyprus, at least for the last four or five decades, which was not the case before 1974. The second factor always relates with the absence of an actor, a radical actor in the post-1974 period. The left, who was usually this type of actor, turned its attention in maintaining all the past achievements and solidifying democracy, let's say, it did not pursue any further claims. It took a defending position. And this also, and this unavoidably resulted uh, and was reflected on the absence of uh, this type of mobilizations. However, I strongly believe that things are indeed changing in Cyprus in this respect as well. This change is linked to experiences and learning from abroad. Many people uh, in Cyprus bring their experiences uh, from their studies or from working abroad in Cyprus. So this is a type of, let's say, uh, it's not organizational learning, but it's learning. It's a learning process that people bring with them when they return to Cyprus. Another explanation, which again is crucial for me, lies with the failures of the political system to find solutions to the problems of the uh, ordinary citizens, let's say, the ordinary people and the inability of the political parties to represent them effectively. Therefore, people only naturally use other channels to transfer their demands. And this increasingly includes streets, uh, street mobilizations, and of course, the social media. But we've seen people going into the streets more and more in recent years. This indicates that the elections Another mechanism that we've had for many years that we've used them to diffuse the tension. They don't seem any longer to work, at least in the way they did in the past. People 
uh, at large and organizations therefore seek other ways to express their grievances. And I expect that this type of mobilizations and uh, the consequent uh, violent conducts on some occasions, I expect them to rise in the future, yeah. To respond to that, I'm just uh, gonna go with a very, very mm-hmm. brief story. So, in twenty 20- mm-hmm. in twenty eighteen, I was in Lebanon for uh, quite some time. I was uh, actually oh. uh, tracking down. I was investigating the 2015-2016 protests uh, that took place yeah. in Lebanon in Beirut specifically uh, as a reaction to the garbage crisis, which started off as an uh, environmental and uh, ecological. Uh, concern, but then it escalated to a political uh, movement, and they formed, you know, protesters yeah. to form different uh, social movements. They had some leadership. They ha- exhibited a lot of uh, interesting traits uh, because they, they were joined by people from the civil society sector, the academia, mm-hmm. and uh, but unfortunately. Uh, for uh, the progress uh, in uh, in terms of uh, overcoming this very serious impediment in the sectarian Lebanon, yeah. those protests were hijacked. And they were hijacked specifically by party interests, uh, more established parties such as uh, Hezbollah, which actually maintain its own intelligence network. They use their network to infiltrate those protests. Uh, to cause within mm-hmm. the protesters uh, different violent incidents to actually, you know, split them up, bring them apart uh, on each other's throats. So my question is, do you think that protests of this nature in Cyprus would in the future be more susceptible to to this uh, hijacking by political party interests? I wouldn't exclude it. So it's a possibility, but it's not something that will happen necessarily. I would say that at least in Cyprus, uh, most parties, I'm not sure whether they have the ability anymore to do that, to hijack, even if they wanted. Uh, They have been accustomed to parliamentary forms of activity for a long time now. So I'm not so sure that they, uh, even if they want it sometimes, whether they can actually do it. Uh, And it will always come down to the participant themselves as well. Uh, Sometimes you see participating actors and uh, which represent other small organizations or small social movements seeking the cooperation with uh, specific political parties, either because they have common goals or because they acknowledge that uh, the political party might also provide a basis for supporting their event. A party, on the other hand, participating in such demonstrations and similar events, it's not by definition with the purpose of hijacking it, but it could happen, yeah. But it could be the case that the party agrees with the purpose of demonstration or the protest and therefore op- offers its support. Particularly in Cyprus, you are very correct to point to this direction because of the pivotal role that political parties have played throughout the existence of Cyprus democracy, of the Republic of Cyprus, and particularly in the post-1974. But I think that they are not so capable anymore. Afterwards, We've seen it happening on many occasions. I wouldn't like to refer to specific events here from our recent history. Political parties trying to capitalize on these protests. Uh, We've seen political competitors trying to use it against their political competition. So in general, in principle, I would say that uh, there is a risk of hijacking it. 
but maybe not in the sense that your example said with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is something entirely different. I mean, it's a different type of organization. It's not a, uh, let's say, a political party per se in the way we understand the term political party, at least in uh, in Cyprus and in, and in the European Union. So it might be a danger there, but sometimes it depends. It comes down to the participants, uh, what they actually want themselves. Right. I'm going to ask you uh, one uh, last question, which uh, is probably a very big one. <laughs> I, I want to ask you specifically about, because this is all very interesting, but I want to ask you more about the current projects that you're working yes. on, any future research coming up, but also specifically uh, your project uh, called The Left Project. Yeah. Uh, so what's, what, what is this about and uh, what has inspired it? It's it's quite um, interesting to see this development. Yeah. Well, what's it all about? Essentially, it's a continuation of my previous research. First, like we said in the beginning, uh, I work a lot with uh, the parties of the radical left, in general with the field of radical left parties. This particular project is, uh, I tried to build on my previous experience and uh, I will also try and build on this project as well for something bigger in the future. It's. The title, uh, it's uh, Party Organization, the Challenge of Governing and Democracy. And the general op- objective of this project is twofold. Uh, first, I aim to study uh, the radical left party's organizational change and adaptation to governing. Uh, in other words, to identify the impact of governing on party organization. And secondly, I aim to examine uh, the radical left party's organization in relation to democratic politics and intra-party democracy. So I'm interested to see how the governing experience uh, of certain radical left parties has influenced their party organization. And the focus here is mostly internally, how they organize internally, and also the levels of intra-party democracy. The empirical material focuses on two of the most significant parties that we include in this uh, radical left party family, uh, the Greek Syriza and the Cypriot Agel. The main hypothesis running the entire project is that both parties' democratic functioning has been under severe stress as a result of this government experience and participation. And the aim afterwards is to expand this into other parts of Europe that we've had this experience with radical left parties in Portugal, in Spain, where they offer support or they participate in governing coalitions and maybe afterwards take it a step forward as well. In, so this is very briefly, because I could speak for a long time for the left project. The, t- the title, of course, as you, all, as you uh, probably know, I use a catchy term uh, that is usually the case when we uh, propose uh, similar research projects. And, but the essence is, is what I have just explained. Mm-hmm. And I wish you all the best with it as well, because uh, it does sound like quite an, an interesting project. Thank you very much, Pedro. And on that note, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, been quite an interesting and an exciting conversation. As it was something that we don't often <laughs> have talk about. And uh, we'll definitely be in touch. And I wish you all the best with your future projects. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Pedro.